Hello and welcome to the Spike podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and back with me in the studio this week we have Spike's editor Tom Slater. Hello. And joining us down the line, live from Luton, Spike columnist and author of Beyond Grievance, it's Rakib Essan. Hello. Coming up on today's show, the uselessness of Rishi Sunak, the insurrection in Russia and the truth about racism in cricket. So it's been a pretty terrible couple of weeks for Rishi Sunak. Um, the consensus at the moment seems to be that he's not going to miss his key inflation target. The economy isn't growing as he had promised us as it would by it would be by now. And even his pledge on the small boats is also looking a bit shaky now that his plan for the, his flagship plan, the Rwanda scheme, has been struck down in the courts. Tom, I mean, is it starting to dawn on people that maybe Rishi Sunak is a bit useless? I think so. And I think it's interesting that it's this week that it really feels like the crows are starting to circle because aside from all the kind of Westminster melodrama, the kind of things that people expected to bring him down, you know, more pantomime over Boris Johnson or whatever mm-hmm. it might be, it was always going to be something like this because his only his kind of a, entire reason for being, mm-hmm. his entire pitch as to why he had to be anointed as Tory party leader by Tory MPs was stability, was delivery, was giving them at least a couple of things to show for themselves when it comes to the next election. And it does feel like this is the week in which, with more of a whimper than a bang, all of that has kind of come undone, you know, as you suggest. When he was brought in, it was very much about trying to get a handle on what was going on in the mortgage market, what was going on in the economy more broadly. Inflation is stuck at where it is. Core inflation is actually going up. Um, And of course, we've had like average mortgage rates are back to where they were just in the wake of the not so many budget. So on that score, he's completely failed. Obviously, we'll get into it a little bit later. Less um, in his hands, the question of the Rwanda scheme, more kind of, you know, a question of the kind of legal limits which um, exist to hem in democratic policy making, which is a slightly different question. But at the same time, again, demonstrates his inability to deliver, his inability to grasp that particular nettle, which is was always going to be a difficult fight that he picked on that question of dealing with the small boats. and. It's just such a striking contrast when he first came in in October 2022, where he did get, I wouldn't say it was gushing praise, but it was mm. pretty warm. I mean, even James O'Brien, you know, Hampstead's favourite shock jock, said something to the effect of, it does feel like an adult is back in the room. Yeah. You know, I think Paul Wall from the I said a couple of months ago that, whisper it, but Rishi Sunak is turning out to be very competent as Prime Minister. <laughs> I don't think they'd say any of that now. But I think it it does remind us that, that technocratic, very managerial kind of style of politics, it sells itself successfully to the media, unsuccessfully to everyone else as it's it's brilliant, we're competent, we are here to deliver. Not only is that kind of bloodless, but often, and we see this with Rishi Sunak, the claims to competence are also bogus. Yeah. And I think that's what we're seeing with Rishi Sunak, really, at this point. The, the, The adults in the room have no idea what they're doing either, Mm. once again. It seems to be more than a mood than an actual, you know, than any proof of this competence. I mean, Rakeem, what what have you made of Rishi Sunak lately? I mean, he's posed as Mr. Fix-It. What has he fixed? He's fixed very little, Fraser. Uh, if to be told, and I totally agree with Tom that he sold himself as kind of very uh, uh, sort of promising sound management of the country's affair affairs, and this kind of you know this technocratic competence. Uh, if you could call it that, uh, not many people. It's not only the case that people find it distant 
if you tried to manage the country in such a technocratic way, uh, there's very serious questions to be asked about delivery. And, and, and I think this is a real problem with the Conservative Party government for some time. There's a huge gap between the rhetoric, they talk a good game, but when it comes to the bread and butter of policy delivery, they're failing in a number of areas, um, particularly the small boats emergency on the English South Coast. We've had the Court of Appeal ruling today saying that the UK Rwanda migration partnership is unlawful. Don't consider Rwanda to be a safe third country. Uh, now, there is a debate to be had, of course, that perhaps we should introduce legislation which curbs the power of these judicial interventions, whether they be foreign or domestic. Uh, but the government really needs to move away from simply talking a good game, in a sense, saying what they think people want to hear, uh, and really step up its efforts in terms of actual policy delivery. And I think that if you're ultimately, if your personal brand in Rishi Sunak's case is ultimately emphasising that I'm a competent, responsible individual, I'm a grown-up, uh, at the moment he's failing miserably. And I think that's reflected in his own personal ratings. And Tom, I mean, you know, sticking with migration, I mean, it's not just the judiciary that have been seeking to frustrate um, mm. Rishi Sunak's plans, it's also the Lords. But at the same time, you know, he has backed away from having a fight with those those groups. You know, he could as Rakib suggests, you know, pass legislations mm -hmm. to overturn some of these rulings. Mm -hmm. He could, wh why is the government not abolishing the Lords? You know, mm -hmm. the Conservative 2019 manifesto promised serious reform of the Lords, and that's arguably, that's clearly not going to happen in the next couple of mm -hmm. years. No, I think that's exactly right. I think the two things which are true here at the same time is on the one hand, there has been a very anti-democratic attempt to frustrate the Tories' migration policy, which even as someone who doesn't like this Rwanda policy, I found very chilling, mm. whether that was the late-in-the-day injunctions in our domestic courts or whether it was the European court frustrating that flight out from Rwanda. But at the same time, he's never had any stomach for the fight on these questions. He would mm. never go anywhere near, for instance, pulling out of, say, the European Convention on Human Rights, which has been cited in this Court of Appeal ruling today as to why it's unlawful to send migrants to Rwanda and so on. He's never had any stomach to take on the House of Lords. He also doesn't have any kind of room to do so, even if he yeah. wanted to do so. So weakened is he by his party's particular position, his own lack of any mandate whatsoever. He was just anointed by Tory MPs. We should remember that. And so on the one hand, um, you one's back does go up at these kind of attempts by um, various different factions of the establishment to frustrate the intentions of the government of the day. But at the same time, you can't get away from the fact that it's it, that he's making it too easy for them, you know, and it's mm. and and the whole project has just become so desiccated at this particular point. It really does feel like um, there's just no, he, even he doesn't know what the point of this is at this point, and that's something which you just it's you struggle to see how he could regain any kind of sense of momentum in with uh, in the run up to an election. Where would he get it from yeah. at this point? And, and another key failing seems to be the, the culture wars. This is somewhere, again, where he occasionally will pipe up, say something interesting. Um, the other week he made a joke about um, women not having penises and um, Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, needing to have biology lessons um, up to the age of 18. Um, but, you know, in the past couple of weeks, we've seen some pretty horrendous stories come out of um, schools in the UK. A school in Essex, for instance, there was... Um, a girl who was sexually assaulted in a gender-neutral bathroom. We've heard about, um, that was reported in The Telegraph and in the, in the Sunday Times, we learned about a pupil who was socially transitioned behind her parents' back. In fact, even given uh, hormone treatment, uh, referred to a doctor without her parents' knowledge. 
And all this while Rishi Sunak promised that there would be tougher guidance for schools um, by the beginning of this summer term that's just that's just gone. So, Ricky, there's no progress on that front either. No, not really. And, and I think that it's all good cracking jokes about Sir Ed Davey in, in, in private discussions. But as, as I said again, and this is exactly the point that Tom made as well, there has to be direct policy actions that make a meaningful impact, um, whether that's the small boats emergency or uh, deeply problematic uh, incidents in schools. Uh, I think that the effects of radical transgenderism are a very serious threat when it comes to the integrity of uh, sensitive female-only spaces. Uh, We've seen a a number of episodes which support that claim. Uh, I I just feel that the Conservative government is just in in, in so many areas uh, that they make the – it's a sort of cultural rhetoric, um, saying what they think that much the public wants to hear – but ultimately, if you want to be in government and you, you feel passionately about these issues, uh, I, I don't really see that level of passion when it comes to actually driving forward, uh, driving forwards the, the kind of legislation that could address these very problems which they are supposedly so passionate and care about. And Tom, we're just drifting towards a Labour government at this point. I mean, it does feel like it. And also, if like us at Spiked, you really don't like the kind of dry man- managerialism of which Rishi Sunak has made kind of an art, then you're really not going to like it. Starmer so very much either. <laughs> I mean, they are kind of, you know, the same bloke in two different suits to a certain extent. It is that very depressing sense that we're back to the kind of early 2000s status quo ante where you do just have these kind of competing bank managers, project yeah. planners, um, where there's no ideology, there's no passion, there's no colour, there's no vision. Mm. It's just, I can run the country better. I mean, all of Labour's attack lines at this point, it was like, we would do this, but better. We would do this, but more competently. It's a battle (laughs) of the competent and no one gets out of bed for that. I think it's going to be interesting to see how many people switch off from the next election entirely. And it's one of those things, I know a lot of people in the media, as we were kind of gesturing to earlier with some of the praise that Rishi Sunak got, at least for a while, really have been pining for that return to mm. that sort of Blairite managerialism when everything made sense, all the parties looked the same, um, the public didn't get a look in. They love all that time. But it is worth reminding them that not only is that not what the public wants, not only is that an incredibly lifeless and dull way to do public life, those people also failed yeah. time and time again. These people with their pie charts and their experts and their orthodoxies and so on. And in the middle of this cost of living crisis, we're having to pay for their mistakes again. So it is worth reminding that when you have people like Sunak, you have people like Starmer, who try to present themselves as the person who can just steady the ship, as the adult in the room, whatever cliche it is they're throwing out. Time and again, it's proven that the adults in the room are two children in a trench coat, effectively. And I think that's what we're seeing again now with Sunak. I just wanted to let you know that Brendan O'Neill's new book, A Heretic's Manifesto, is back in stock on Amazon. Also, if you want to get a hold of a signed copy of the book, our special offer is still running. If you donate £50 or more to Spiked, you can get your hands on a signed copy for free, and it will be delivered straight to your door while stocks last. To donate your £50 and to get a hold of your signed copy of Heretic's Manifesto, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash donate. That's spiked-online.com forward slash donate. 
And also, we'll throw in a year's access to Spike Supporters. That's our online donor community, which comes with all kinds of other brilliant perks, just as a way of saying thank you. So Russia was rocked at the weekend by an extraordinary armed insurrection. The uh, Wagner Group and its leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, essentially left the battlefield in Ukraine, crossed the border into Russia, uh, took over a major military headquarters, and then started to march on Moscow. Now, this mutiny, rebellion, insurrection, whatever you want to call it, um, was over within about 36 hours. But, I mean, the implications are pretty big beyond that. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, it was one of the most striking moments, not just of the conflict, but all of Putin's time in power. You know, mm -hmm. he had a direct challenge to his authority. It is worth saying that Prigozhin was very much framing this as against the military leadership, particularly Sergei Shoigu and uh, Valery Gerasimov, who he has been kind of like openly beefing with on Telegram for many weeks and months over um, being undersupplied, um, then effectively just not backing up his um, Wagner forces, particularly when they were fighting in Bakhmut, you know, ranting in front of piles of bodies behind him of his own men and so on. So this is this this kind of open argument has existed for some time, but it did go up a notch. He did even seem to make some subtle digs at Putin himself. Um, he was also talking pretty openly about how the rationale for going into Ukraine was bollocks as far as yeah. he was concerned and that this was all just about Shoigu wanting a, a medal and this was the idea that they were about to launch some sort of attack on Russia was nonsense and the idea that they're full of Nazis is nonsense. Now it's hard to, as ever where Russia is concerned, kind of pick through the propaganda and the, what actually happened, what the actual motivations were. I mean, it's worth stressing that Prigozhin is not some sort of liberal reformer desperate to take <laughs> Russia in, a, in an anti-war direction far yeah. from it. I mean, he's leading a brutal mercenary group mm. um, who, shall we say, make the Russian army proper look like the most upstanding armed forces in the world in terms of the sort of things they're prepared to do and have been prepared to do. But at the same time, it is an incredible challenge to Putin's authority. It's, the, it's this one of the things which has really kind of exposed the fact that whilst from the outside, particularly given it's very kind of the state's very authoritarian term in the midst of the war, that it's also very fragile. Yeah that this kind of oligarchical setup in which you have kind of competing interests and so on can make things very difficult when the going gets tough. And that also this reliance on mercenaries, people mm -hmm. who are ultimately uh, not necessarily loyal to the commander-in-chief, to the presidents of the nation, but are doing it for money and loyal to their own particular commanders, is an incredibly dangerous and destabilizing thing. So I think it, what it's re reminded us is the fact that... Um, even though I don't think it's going to move the dial on the war anytime soon, I think people are getting a little bit ahead of themselves or were when the uprising was underway. It does remind you that the the regime that we're talking about here is was was never kind of the ironclad uh, coherent body that it might have seemed from the outside. Yeah, and and what's interesting is that in in many senses that doesn't make it any less dangerous. Mm -hmm. And the Ukrainians have long warned that actually the real danger is the the weakness of the russian leadership that that is you know one reason why it has been so aggressive um, externally almost to make up for its kind of internal um weaknesses and fragility i mean Rakeem, what have you made of this this incident well i find much of the commentary bizarre the, there's this so-called sort of anti-putin liberals in the west cheering on Prigozhin as he marched to moscow which is absolutely bizarre because as tom has said that um the Wagner Group's conduct in various parts of the world, um, 
not not just in the Russia uh, Russia Ukraine conflict, but also in Syria and parts of Africa as well. Mm. Th- th- they make the Kremlin war machine look a bit soft based on some of the things that they've been accused of. So I, I, I found a lot of the commentary suspect, to say the least. I, I know that Prigozhin, his criticisms are very much directed towards the military, the Russian military establishment, not so much President Putin. But there's no doubt that these events, even though Prigozhin now has been is exiled in Belarus um, under Lukashenko, he has undermined President Putin's authority. He's probably the, the, the strongest undermining of his authority since he really was in the top tier of Russian politics, um, in, in my view. Uh, so I think there's no doubt that um, it, it was one of those moments where I think that, once again, many people, their, their lack of understanding of the conflict was uh, was well and truly exposed. And I think the risk of Russia, you know, descending into a civil war, considering that the number of nuclear warheads that Russia has, uh, that would be, it'd be a serious threat to the very stability of the wider international system mm-hmm. if Russia was to, uh, to, to descend into civil conflict. So I think what was interesting, really, is that there's many commentators in the West who are very involved in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. They comment, in it, they comment on it in a great deal. But if you look at their commentary um, during the, sort of the, the Wagner Group's march to Moscow, um, it, it truly shows that they don't know what was at stake and they don't really know much about the Wagner Group itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's kind of anyone but Putin <laughs> type attitude. And, and often what people forget is that actually, while there are many, Putin does have many opponents, mm-hmm. many of them are more hardline than he is mm. in terms of um, their views on the Ukraine war. Mm-hmm. Much of the criticism of him has been his, you know, his failure to capture Kiev, mm-hmm. uh, not that he's too bloodthirsty. Yeah, no, completely. And it is one of those things where you do wonder whether people recognise how significant it would be if, as Rakib was sketching out there, you did have this kind of fragmentation within Russia, full-on civil war. I mean, this particular kind of uprising has reminded us of some of the characters involved, whether you're talking mm. about Kadyrov in Chechnya or you're talking about Prigozhin now exiled or whatever. You have various different components and competing interests and even in some cases kind of competing armies effectively that are at play here i mean you're talking about a country that big if you're talking about Mm -hmm. a country that that kind of nuclear arsenal this is not unimportant and whilst of course we all want ukraine to repel this invasion and to triumph and to defend their national sovereignty the sort of um slightly childish glee with which some people are kind of you know willing on almost the collapse of the russian state does need to be called into question yeah and i think for and for, i think some of those people fulfill the worst stereotype of um, western supporters of ukraine as if all they're really interested in is just getting rid of putin mm. <laughs> which is not why i think the vast majority of people in the west do support ukraine they're fundamentally concerned about that nation and its defense of its sovereignty but um, yes, it has exposed not only the uh, short-sightedness of some of those people, um, but also, frankly, the fact that they obviously don't really know what they're talking about. I mean, within about five minutes, Anne Applebaum thought that the entire Russian state was going to fall apart, but it didn't work out that way, Yeah, did it? So it was one of those things where um, it was revealing as much for the takes as for what actually took place. But it is fascinating as to what's going to happen next. You know, is Prigozhin just going to be allowed to mill around Minsk with his mm. private army. I mean, it's, I mean, presumably he's going to be stuck keeping away from windows and cups of tea for a while. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch, not least because, and important to watch, because as we've mm. all been talking about, the stakes are very high here. You know? Yeah, and you know, there's a sense that has he in some ways got away with it? You know, he's not being punished 
that severely. Mm. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you would yeah. be amazed if something did. Yeah. Happen, yeah. But we'll... well, let's see. So English cricket is racist, sexist and elitist, according to a landmark new report by the uh, Commission for Equity in Cricket. Rakib, this report is pretty extraordinary. Um, what have you made of it? Well, it's extraordinarily bad, uh, in my view. I never thought I'd see the day that I'd see a report uh, into the state of cricket in England and Wales, and in the forward would be the uh, a specific mention of a police homicide in the US state of Minnesota. And, and I think that really tells you how um, th- this particular commission was set up um, as BLM was uh, emerging uh, as a social movement in the UK in response to the police killing of George Floyd uh, in Minnesota. Uh, What was very interesting for me was that the the commentary um, within the report, it it, it was littered with what we would consider to be these kind of sort of radical cultural terminology, cisgender, uh, (laughs) for example. And I think that really shows how, how aggressively US identity politics has been imported into the UK to the extent where we're seeing the political and cultural Americanization of what is a quintessentially British sport. Uh, In my view, I've I've argued this for some time, that uh, for me, the main barriers in cricket are class-based. For example, maintaining cricket facilities can be quite expensive, as is purchasing cricket-related equipment. Um, There's been the selling of uh, state state school fields, as you know, cricket is a game where you do need a decent amount of space just to just to have a game, um, and just to have a proper cricket match. Uh, and, I, and I think that more generally, of course, there's no doubt that when you look at cricket, um, those who have attended private school are, if you want to use that term, overrepresented. But then if you look at the England cricket team that won the 2019 World Cup, incredibly diverse in terms of race, ethnicity, faith, social class and country of birth. So uh, if you're arguing that cricket suffers from this sort of widespread racial and ethnic discrimination uh, and people ultimately, many people in cricket are uh, contaminated uh, by uh, racial prejudices, I don't think you would have seen that kind of outcome where such a diverse national team would emerge victorious uh, in, in what was a very competitive tournament. So... I think that more generally, when when you look at the report, I I think that it's deeply unfair on the game uh, itself. And I think, in a sense, it didn't truly focus on what I consider to be the main barriers when it comes to participation uh, in grassroots cricket in England and Wales. In a sense, I mean, Tom, have we been here a bit before with cricket? I mean, we had the Azim Rafiq mm. uh, allegations of racism. That's what I thought would spark this report. Apparently, it was George Floyd, as yeah. if you know the cricketing associations of, of Britain had some sort of nefarious involvement <laughs> with the Minneapolis <laughs> Police Department. I don't, but anyway, it's, I mean, it, it was a weird summer. I yeah. mean, everyone lost. Their a lot minds. of reviews were open. A lot of people yeah. were sacked. There was a lot of stuff going. A lot on, of black but, squares yeah. posted mm-hmm. um, in tribute. But yes, it was, it was sparked by the George Floyd thing, not by any genuine accusations mm-hmm. of racism, but even. You know, when going back to those allegations around um, Azim Rafiq, some of them turned out not to be true. Mm-hmm. Um, you think about poor old Michael Vaughan, mm-hmm. who was accused of being racist, racist um, accused of making racist remarks, which uh, lots of other people said they didn't hear and couldn't mm. back up. 
Yeah, I mean, he was sort of dragged through that show trial, effectively. He was, mm. You know, he was, um, I believe, I forget the exact name of it, but the kind of cricket discipline board or some such, which had kind of um, had this, essentially this hearing. I mean, he was suspended from the BBC, where he's obviously a commentator. Um, and he was effectively presumed guilty until those allegations completely unraveled. You know, mm. it was even if he had made this claim that um, Vaughan, the former England cricket captain, had made this kind of slightly strange remark. Um, but the other teammates who he claimed were also witnesses to it either didn't remember it or said that they didn't think he was being racist in saying it. So it was one of those things where it's it's become, again, just as soon as something becomes a narrative, it's very easy for that yeah. to propel all kinds of investigations, all kinds of things forward. No one wants to be that organisation which is seen to be, in quote, not taking these allegations seriously. Um, but I think it's so important that organisations have to grow a backbone and resist some of this stuff mm. to the extent that they're not already completely captured and they're just doing it to themselves. They need to be able to say... No. Yeah. Um, and it's getting to the point where because of this ludicrous new anti-racism definition of what racism is, you know, you see a report being discussed in the media like this and your immediate assumption is that it's bullshit. Yeah. Like that's a really bad place to be in. Like, mm. and then you open it up and you realise, oh yes, they're using, they're doing the kind of the standard procedure, which is to say you make broad sweeping assertions, you use a Amer deeply Americanized cultural language, you try and apply that script over here. You take what might be uh, some instances of some genuinely unpleasant stuff, but then try to present that as proof that the entire mm. organisation, institution, game, whatever is riddled with this stuff. It's almost like any instance of it is proof that the whole thing is rotten yeah not uh, the vast majority of people would not accept that that's how you measure the racism or sexism or anything of any particular organization but that's the standard that's being applied often in a not particularly transparent way they just yeah. declare something institutionally racist and don't even necessarily explain what they mean by that even if they understand and it's gotten into us in a really bad place in general where our discussion about racism discrimination the extent to which it persists what to do about it has been so blurred by mm. these sort of racial entrepreneurs, as it were, these people who are pushing this new anti-racism on us, that you hear an accusation like this and your first instinct is scepticism. And that's not a particularly good place to be in either, yeah. you know. Yeah, Rakeep, I mean, is it possible <laughs> in today's climate for any institution to defend itself against this accusation of systemic racism or institutional racism? Because it can just mean anything. Fraser, I think the ECB sh shot themselves in the foot the moment they s sort of helped to set up this independent commission. Uh, it, it was an absolutely bizarre decision. And if you look at some of the recommendations, it clearly shows that this so-called independent commission has a deeply problematic ideological bent. For example, it suggests that the annual matches at Lords between uh, Harrow and Eton and uh, Oxford and Cambridge University should be scrapped. <laughs> now, you can scrap Racism these I don't understand how that would boost diversity, equality and inclusion in in, in English cricket by scrapping those fixtures. Uh, listen, I, 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 I attended a state school, but I think there it's just, it's just a very clear ideological hostility towards tradition and private schooling. Uh, that's what it boils down to. Eton Harrow is one of the oldest sporting fixtures in the world. It stretches back to 1805. I'd also make the point this year, this year's match that Harrow won, uh, is Victoria's skipper was called Veer Patel. So this idea that this is just, you know, uh, two bunches of uh, white, uh, privately educated schoolboys, you know, just having a hit around Lords, that, that's really not the case. Quite often these, these teams are quite diverse. 
Um, so, so I think it's very clear that the commission had an ideological bent. I, I think, for example, for me, there could have been some very good practical recommendations. I think there should be more opportunities for state schools when you have sort of state school competitions for those finals to be played more often at Lords, Edgbaston, Trent Bridge, Headingley, Old Trafford. So I think in a way you can maintain those traditions, you can maintain those traditional fixtures, but build on that by making those historic cricket grounds more accessible for working class kids in inner city schools um, that love their cricket. So, so I think that in, in a way, if you want cricket to progress and you want it to modernise, you need to bring the traditionalists with you who are quite influential in the game. And I think that it, that, that would be a, a more practical way of making the uh, game of cricket more inclusive as opposed to these problematic, ideologically driven recommendations that we saw uh, in this new report into the state of cricket in England and Wales. And Rakeeb, it's not as if... Um... You know, cricket is a particularly white game, would you say, if you think of the other, oh, I other than I England, the great cricketing nations? I, I, and that's the problem that I have with these reports, because I think that if you're sort of a young ethnic minority Muslim who loves the game, and you even have ambitions to play for England, hmm. I don't think this kind of report is actually very helpful yeah. um, at all. If we see in the last decade, we've had Moin Ali, Adil Rashid, uh, Zafar Ansari, Hasib Amid, Sakib Mahmood, and most recently Rahan Ahmed, all of them have made their test debuts for England uh, in, in the last decade. And I think actually, if you look at sports, uh, English sport more generally, I don't think there's one sport where you have that kind of sort of multi-ethnic, multi-ethnic, multi-race, uh, multi-racial, as, as, as multi-faith uh, composition, especially when it comes to the national team and many county teams uh, in, in the English cricket circuit. So I think all in all, I think that the report was unfortunate. And I think that it was overly doom and gloom when it talks about the progress that English cricket has made and the integral part that it plays when it comes to being the basis for social cohesion in our modern democracy. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.